This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, nothing going on underground, no ma'am, nothing at all. This is Encounter 507, The Hollowed Earth. Underground Bases I'm not sure where it ranks among the evocative phrases of the late 1980s, 1990s saucer studies, but it's got to be pretty high in the list, right up there with abductions and Roswell, as far as dredging up memories of a generation ago. The connection between subterranean facilities and the broader stories of alien conspiracy and cover-up is a strong one during this time period, and one that ties into some of the earlier topics we've covered. Fred Natus, in his 2013 biography of Ray Palmer, attributes two specific strands of 1980s and 1990s conspiracy thought to that pulp author and editor that we met back when we talked about um, Richard Shaver. The first of these is, quote, the flying saucer community's certainty of a government cover-up, end quote. And the second is, quote, the hollow earth tradition, end quote, promulgated by Shaver in Palmer's writing. He specifically highlighted the tales of underground bases near Dulce, New Mexico, as a prominent inheritor of the Shaver and Palmer tradition, characterizing stories of subterranean alien experimentation as, quote, a Dero scene right out of a Shaver story. Let's find out more. In his extensive survey of conspiracy culture from the late 1990s, uh, Michael Barkin, a political scientist, states, quote, The inner earth materials place the alien presence underground, in tunnels, installations, and caverns. In some cases, the aliens come from outer space and merely choose a subsurface realm because they feel more secure there. In other instances, they are said to be native to the netherworld, the underground denizens are always described as malevolent, perhaps a reflection of the long-standing identification of underground realms with the domain of the dead. Hell is always below, heaven above. End quote. Barkin's examination of subterranean conspiracy theories, particularly to sinister underground bases, is tightly bound up with UFOs and extraterrestrial conspiracy narratives, and as we'll see, there's certainly a strong alien connection to this topic. Reports of an alleged base, you might have heard of this one, near Dulce, New Mexico, emerged in the 1980s from the, the writings and speeches and, and, and work of Bill Moore and John Lear and John Grace or Val Valerian or whatever you want to call him. Stories of occurrences at the Dulce base would become a strange subgenre of alien conspiracy narratives during the 1990s especially. And as we've seen in past episodes, questions of alien visitors and their quizzling collaborators in the American government cast a long shadow. But there are aspects of underground bases to which Barkin and others have paid far less attention. And this is the connection between these supposed underground bases and other firmly terrestrial and political conspiracy narratives. During the 1990s, tales of mysterious underground military bases become blended with reports of unmarked black helicopters, as well as persistent fears of martial law and the subjugation of the U.S. by the United Nations. These ideas were promoted by... Big shock here, Bill Cooper, uh, a woman named Linda Thompson, and others. And this relatively prosaic approach to the investigation of underground bases, I'm prosaic in the sense that it's, it's earthly, terrestrial, political concerns rather than space beings. This also highlights the ambiguous and shifting nature of the question of, of ET visitation and the ways in which political conspiracists contorted 
the issues in order to bolster their own claims. But we're here to talk about flying saucers, not conspiracy theories about the Trilateral Commission, or are we? Uh, So we'll leave the political conspiracy to one side. Uh, It's important. It might be surfacing again as we go through this because you can't escape it. But um, it's important to recognize that these connections exist. Because of the explosion of writers and researchers who focused on the political aspects of various conspiracies, we see these writers having to address the question of alien conspiracies, even in their most, you know, down-to-earth terrestrial and political work, despite the fact that most of them saw alien infiltration stories as a sort of disinformation tactic and distraction from the real problem of, you know, the FEMA death camps or whatever. And this is certainly true bringing us back around to where we're supposed to be going. Certainly true in the case of underground bases and secret government facilities. There's a book from 1995 by a guy named Richard Souter, and it's called Underground Bases and Tunnels. What is the government trying to hide? Despite its lurid subtitle, it's uh, it's actually a remarkably sensible book, and it focuses mostly on the factual evidence of below-ground government and military installations using declassified documents to demonstrate that it's possible to build these bases, and so on. But because of the underground base meme within ufology, this very sort of down-to-earth book down-to-earth book about uh, underground facilities has to address the UFO thing. And Souter opens the book with a, a, a what he calls a cautionary note to UFO buffs in, um, which, in which he says that, uh, that, quote, his research has not revealed whether or not little greys even exist, much less whether or not they're living and working in underground installations. Maybe the little greys do exist. Perhaps they do not. And then he sort of leaves the UFO stuff aside. Um, but, uh, but it doesn't really get into UFO, into UFO stuff very much, very much at all. So stories begin during the 1980s and spreading like wildfire in the the late 80s and 1990s about an alleged underground facility near Dulce, New Mexico. And this becomes a staple of UFO lore. And due, at least in part, to the prominence of the Dulce-based story, the entire concept of underground bases has become completely sort of severed from its factual Cold War continuity of government, wouldn't it be great Boeing if you built airplanes underground because then nobody could nuke you sort of sort of basis and has become firmly lodged within the realm of, of the conspiratorial and, and especially the extraterrestrial. And it begins in many ways in the late 1970s with a man named Paul Benowitz, who I believe we've discussed in previous encounters. Benowitz, an Albuquerque, New Mexico man whose company, Thunder Scientific, did work for the Air Force, became involved in a disinformation effort by the Air Force. And this effort fed into his own interests and pre-existing sort of beliefs and research and his fears and paranoia, including his belief that there is an underground base near Dulce being operated by hostile aliens. Now, there is a lot out there about the Benowitz affair and any summarizing I do here to get us deeper into the underground base thing is going to run a very serious risk of leaving out something very critical. So right off the bat, I'm going to try to manage some expectations and issue some orders to you to read some stuff when we're done here. If you want 
a fuller and more detailed account of the origins of some of the things we're going to be examining and the the very fascinating case of Paul Benowitz and, and that whole thing. First, read Greg Bishop's Project Beta. Then, read Greg Valdez's Dulce Base. Next, check out the documentary Mirage Men. If you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, I, th I think you can watch it there as part of your subscription. And these sources will give you a, a, a pretty good thorough grounding in the subject. But for our purposes, know this. Benowitz became acquainted with an abductee named Myrna Hansen. Benowitz and Hansen came to believe that Hansen had been implanted with the device, making her one of, if not the first, abduction cases to involve some kind of supposedly alien implant. As a part of his investigations, government disinformation, or probably a combination of the two, Benowitz determined there was an underground alien base in New Mexico. And Greg Valdez, in his book Dulce Base, summarizes his beliefs in this way. Two types of aliens had invaded the U.S., the peaceful whites and the evil greys. The greys, who he said were responsible for cattle mutilations and the abductions of humans, had a treaty with the U.S. government that allowed them to build a secret underground base beneath Archuleta Mesa on the Hicarilla Indian Reservation near Dulce, New Mexico. The aliens, however, were about to break the treaty, so Paul created a manifesto titled Project Beta that explained how to defeat the aliens. You'll recognize that, that basic premise if you've heard some of our previous episodes. Treaties between aliens and humans, abductions, mutilations, and so forth. So, was there a base? According to Sergeant Richard Doty, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations man tasked with handling Benowitz, the Air Force wanted it to look like there was, and Doty's claims were related in Greg Bishop's Project Beta. They placed old storage tanks, equipment shacks, and engineless jeeps and clearings next to the primitive roads. A small area was cleared for helicopter landings. Doty also claims that fake air vents were positioned around the mountain, sticking up out of the ground, to drive the underground base point home. Now, running counter to Doty's claims about doctoring up a, a fake base are the recollections of New Mexico State Trooper Gabe Valdez, who told Bishop that he saw no evidence of any such trappings of an underground base as described by Doty. So was there a base? Let's fall back on our standard saucer life attitude towards things like this. It's more interesting to look at the stories about the base that may or may not have existed than it is to debate the existence of said base. Mentions of the Dulce base with soon-to-be-oft-circulated stories like that of a firefight between aliens and Americans that left dozens dead began to appear in writings by, who else, Bill Cooper in the late 1980s. John Lear's stuff uh, referred to it. Um, Lear's buddy, uh, Bob Lazar, who supposedly worked at Area 51, said some things about a fight between aliens and humans that may have been related to the Dulcie stories. But the first sort of coherent, it's a relative term, offline account um, was entitled The Dulcie Base. And uh, the earliest copy of it I found was an issue nine of Dharma Combat, a magazine published by Jim Keith. Keith also sent copies of the article to members of the, uh, at that time, new National UFO Museum, which was starting up and would be publishing its own magazine, Tales from the Hangar. The author of this article was, uh, was called himself Jason Bishop III, but it begins with a warning. The 
following material comes from people who know the Dulcie underground base exists. They are people who worked in the labs, abductees taken to the base, people who assisted in the construction, intelligence personnel, and UFO inner-Earth researchers. This information is meant for those who are seriously interested in the Dulcie base. For your own protection, be advised to use caution when investigating this complex. Following the warning, Bishop gets into some deep water almost immediately. Centuries ago, surface people, some say the Illuminati, entered into a pact with an alien nation hidden within the Earth. The U.S. government, in 1933, agreed to trade animals and humans in exchange for high-tech knowledge and to allow them to use undisturbed underground bases in the western USA. A special group was forced to deal with the alien beings. In the 1940s, alien life forms began shifting their focus of operations from Central and South America to the USA. The Continental Divide is vital to these entities. Part of this has to do with magnetic rock and high-energy states like plasma. This area has a very high concentration of lightning activity, underground waterways and cavern systems, fields of atmospheric ions, etc. These aliens consider themselves native Terrans. They are an ancient race, descendant from a reptilian humanoid species which crossbred with sapient humans. They are untrustworthy and manipulator mercenary agents for another extraterrestrial culture, the Draco, who are returning to Earth, their ancient outpost, to use it as a staging area. But these alien cultures are in conflict over whose agenda will be followed for this planet. All the while, mental control is being used to keep humans in place, especially since the 40s. The Dulcie Complex is a joint U.S. government alien base. It was not the first built with the aliens. Others are in Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, etc. You know it's the late 1980s and early 1990s when the Illuminati are casually name-dropped into what is ostensibly a story about flying saucers and aliens. That's not the last bit of politically loaded discussion we see in this document. He targets familiar targets. He targets familiar targets. I can't believe I said that, but uh, we'll, we'll leave it in. He targets familiar targets of those concerned with the rise of the overarching military-industrial complex, organizations like the Rand Corporation, Bechtel, and conspiracy standbys, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and, as we've seen, the Illuminati. Bishop also addresses the possibility of misdirection and deceit in the UFO field. Warning. Manipulation and control. Fear, fraud, and favor. The Pentagon, the CIA, NSA, DEA, FBI, NSC, etc. seek to capitalize on the beliefs of the American public. The secret government is getting ready to stage a contact landing with the aliens in the near future. This way, they can control the release of alien-related propaganda. We will be told of an interstellar conflict, but what looks real may be fake. What is disinformation? Is your attention being diverted by the strategy of a shadow plan? But the good stuff was yet to come. What actually went on in the Dulcie base? And what's all this about a fight between humans and aliens? Level 6 is privately called Nightmare Hall. It holds the genetic labs. Reports from workers who have seen bizarre experimentation are as follows. Quote, I have seen multi-legged humans that look like half-human, half-octopus. 
Also reptilian humans and furry creatures that have hands like humans and cry like a baby. It mimics human words. Also, huge mixture of lizard humans in cages. End quote. There are fish, seals, birds, and mice that can barely be considered those species. There are several cages and vats of winged humanoids, grotesque bat-like creatures, but three and a half to seven feet tall, gargoyle beings and draco reptoids. Level seven is worse. Row after row of thousands of human and human mixtures in cold storage. Here, too, are embryo storage vats of humanoids in various stages of development. I frequently encountered humans in cages, usually dazed or drugged, but sometimes they cried and begged for help. We were told they were hopelessly insane and involved in high-risk drug tests to cure insanity. We were told to never try to speak to them at all. At the beginning, we believed that story. Finally, in 1978, a small group of workers discovered the truth. It began the Dulcie Wars, and a secret resistance unit was formed. Note. There are over 18,000 aliens at the Dulcie base. In late 1979, there was a confrontation over weapons. A lot of scientists and military personnel were killed. The base was closed for a while, but it is currently active. Note, human and animal abductions for their blood and other parts slowed in the mid-1980s, when the Livermore Berkeley Labs began production of artificial blood for Dulcie. It isn't explicitly stated in in the, the Jason Bishop Dulcie Base article. But to me, listening to that, what it sounds like is with a little bit of roundabout thinking and, and some, I was going to say common sense, but no, you could look at that list of genetic abominations created at the Dulcie Lab and find examples that might fit the bill to explain what people had seen during the 1950s and 60s, as, as we talked about several episodes ago, when encounters with flying saucer creatures were much more varied as far as who was, you know, who, who the occupants were. Small hairy creatures, winged humanoids. Um, if you thought Mothman uh, with winged humanoid, you, uh, you're, you're just like me. Well, not just like me. What a horrible thing to say to you. Um, you, you thought the same thing I did. So that's a little sample of, of the Jason Bishop Dulcie Base article. In the first issue of Notes from the Hangar, that magazine of the National UFO Museum, um, there were some readers who responded to that sample article that had been sent to them by Jim Keith, and they expressed concern about the veracity of the article and the danger of publishing something so so far-fetched and poorly documented. Dear Newfam, I am now going to comment unfavorably on the sample article you sent, The Dulcie Base, by Jason Bishop III. The article is full of disinformation, part truth and part false information given to the UFO com community by the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations. It has been admitted to be so by William Moore, who said he knew it was disinformation and was asked to supply OSI with information on how the disinformation affected Paul Benowitz psychologically. Moore admitted this in his speech to MUFON in Las Vegas in 1989. The problem then was that the The problem, then, was that Benowitz passed along the false information to others, such as Linda Howe, William Cooper, Virgil Armstrong, and others who in turn passed it on to others. 
The chain reaction of false data was intended to frighten ufologists and get them out of the field. What Bishop did not mention was that his sources had not verified the information. One people passing along false data was John Lear Jr., who, according to one of our former members, Dale Goody of of South Seattle, Washington, has been a close personal friend of debunker Philip Klass, who would also be passing along information on the effects of the false information to the Office of Special Investigations. Beware of articles for publication if you cannot verify the facts presented. A newspaper reporter who wrote a phony story wouldn't last one day on the job if his boss found out he had no verification for his facts. Surely notes from the hangar can maintain basic journalistic ethics and present verified facts rather than rumors or disinformation. Why frighten people? Best wishes, Lawrence J. Fenwick, Canadian UFO Research Network. Some readers were more positive. Dear Newfam, I enjoyed your recent information on the Dulcie Base story, which is also mentioned in Matrix 1 and the new Matrix 2. There are over 92 underground cities in the U.S. which are now being used by our government. The Dulcie Base is just one of many. There are also additional key cities underground, under our direct control of the 24 galactic races now visiting our planetary world and playing a key role in planetary-based education. I will be looking forward to soon hearing from you and receiving your latest information. Sincerely yours, Michael Kant. So from the sample of responses of, of people who were sent this article specifically, what we can see is, one, there are dozens of alien races inhabiting the Earth right now which is pretty cool, but also that these stories were nothing new. That even in 1988, between Bill Cooper and and John Lear and and others like them, these things had circulated. And that first letter uh, mentions William Moore, who had worked with Benowitz and was part of the disinformation campaign, and that he uh, he admitted or acknowledged that uh, disinformation had been passed to Benowitz and that this had spread like wildfire throughout throughout the uh, the UFO research community. It's important to recognize that even at the time, responsible many responsible researchers did not take this stuff seriously about the Dulce base, at least not entirely. There's a tendency, especially since the Dulce base thing is still out there and still a story and if you if you throw it into your Google machine, you'll find thousands of stories that that sort of take the same basic plot and re-roll it and replay it. There's a tendency to refer to the UFO community or think of the UFO community as some sort of monolithic entity that shares the same opinion on everything. And and this is particularly true when we try to look back historically. In the 50s, they thought this. In the 60s, they thought this. In the 70s, they thought this. In the 80s, they thought this. There's no they. Not a they that all thinks the same way. So Dulcie is this, this outrageously outlandish horror story that doesn't mean that sort of responsible nuts and bolts you know, UFO researchers took it at face value. It's difficult but important to not make sweeping generalizations about what UFO researchers did or did not believe. The Dulcie story was an outlier, a fringe tale viewed with skepticism, especially by the old guard. But regardless of those concerns, this weird horror story material from Dulcie is what gets repeated and remixed and re-whatevered. The horrific imagery is a crowd pleaser, and the tale of the fight between humans and aliens is pretty cool and would be told time and again by those who had read the story and by those who claimed to have been part of the story. Now, Jason Bishop III was actually a pseudonym, and uh, I got this from from reading uh, the writing of researcher Norio Hayakawa. Um, 
sort of tipped me off to, to check into this more. And Jason Bishop III was actually Tal Levesque, who had made his name writing um, for various Hollow Earth magazines and publications. So Jason Bishop III is really Tal Levesque, and Tal Levesque had a long interest in subterranean mysteries. So it all sort of works together. The first letter from Notes from the Hangar that we heard mentioned a Virgil Armstrong. Virgil Armstrong released a slim book or thick pamphlet, depending on how you want to look at it, titled The Armstrong Report. ETs and UFOs, they need us, we don't need them. So, who was Virgil Armstrong? His uh, his author bio on the website of uh, Inner Light Publications, who published the book, and also published Bill Cooper's Behold a Pale Horse, his, his bio is interesting. Virgil Armstrong, better known as Posty throughout the world, is a retired Army intelligence officer who served eight years with the country's top intelligence agency and ten years as one of the original Green Berets. As an Army intelligence officer, he was a participant in the USA's first known capture of a UFO, Project Grudge, at Sands Proving Grounds, New Mexico, in 1948. As an outgrowth of this incident, Virgil instigated his own research effort to study and uncover further evidence of the UFO phenomenon, developing telepathic abilities to communicate with higher intelligence. I don't know why he's known as Posty, and I've seen no evidence that this is a worldwide phenomenon, and I've seen little evidence that uh, that he even did much besides this book and a mention in that letter. So, low-key, small-scale sort of guy. So what does is, what is old Posty say about Dulcie? My attention, somewhat belatedly, was called to the Dulcie matter by a friend who had just returned from visiting and passing through Dulcie, New Mexico. Bob and Sharon stopped for the night in Dulcie prior to pushing on to Sedona, Arizona. That evening, they went out to dinner. During the course of dinner, they overheard some local residents openly and vociferously discussing extraterrestrial abduction of townspeople for purposes of experimentation. The remarkable part of it all was that people were speaking openly and in the presence of strangers. The gist of the discussion was indeed that an extraterrestrial community and the ETs were taking unwilling human guinea pigs from the general populace of Dulcie and implanting devices in their heads and bodies. During the discussion, mention was made of individuals who had become involved. They expressed alarm and indignation that the abductees had been tampered with both physically and psychologically. The townspeople were frightened and angry, but didn't feel that they hadn't any recourse since the ETs had our government's knowledge and approval. As Bob told the story, I was appalled that something of this magnitude and importance could be sanctioned by our government. Had this story come from anyone but Bob, I would have immediately been skeptical. But knowing Bob as well as I do, he is not prone to wild tales. Yeah, Bob. Whatever else we can say about him, we can assure that he's not prone to wild tales. This story is roughly the same as what emerged from the Benowitz saga and embellished by Cooper and Bishop or Levesque, whatever you want to call them, and others. What's different is the notion of it being common knowledge in the Dulcie region, that everybody's just sitting around a diner um, talking about this. Uh, despite the rash of cattle mutilations and UFO sightings in the region, I don't think I've seen any other account of people just sort of chilling in a restaurant talking about the aliens uh, using us as guinea pigs. To be honest, though, uh, Old Posty's book is full of odd and less believable than usual stories. It also contains my favorite passage from any UFO book ever. As was my habit at the time, I had spent a day in the desert. I was suddenly returning to my car when I was ambushed by a notorious prospector. 
by the name of Renegade Bill. The story goes on to explain that Renegade Bill thought that Posty was a claim jumper. And uh, once they got all that straightened out, um, Renegade Bill told Posty that he saw a UFO. Reading it, it sounds like the the book takes place in the 1890s, um, but it doesn't. It, it took place in like the story happened in the 70s or something. But uh, Renegade Bill, we have a new mascot here at the Saucer Life. So in the late 1980s and into the 1990s, others came forward with supposed firsthand information. And one of these was a guy supposedly named Thomas Costello, who was supposedly a security officer at the base and who produced a set of drawings and some written documentation. Um, John Lear, who we've met, um, a few years ago claimed to have actually been the one who did the drawings, which are weird, crudely drawn images of humanoid creatures and vats of odd liquid and diagrams of the levels of the base. And the text is, is to me, a bit confusing and disjointed and not too clear. Here's a sample. Dulcy papers. Lots of papers. Documents that discuss copper and molybdenum. Also papers about magnesium and potassium, but mostly about copper. Lots of medical terms that I don't understand. A sheet of paper with charts and strange diagrams. Papers that discuss ultraviolet light and gamma rays. Papers that discuss color in black and white and how to avoid detection through the use of certain colors. In addition to these papers, there are about 25 pictures, black and white, plus one videotape with no dialogue, all taken inside of the Dulcy facility. These papers tell what the aliens are after and how the blood taken from the cows is used. Aliens seem to absorb atoms to eat. Aliens put hands in blood, sort of like a sponge for nourishment. It's not just food they want. The DNA in cattle and humans is being altered. The type 1 creature is a lab animal. They know how to change the atoms to create a temporary, almost human being. It is made with animal tissue and depends on a computer to simulate memory, a memory the computer has withdrawn from another human being. The almost human being is slightly slow and clumsy. Real humans are used for training, to experiment, and to breed with these almost humans. Some humans are kidnapped and used completely, even atoms. Some are kept in large tubes and are kept alive in an amber liquid. Some humans are brainwashed and used to distort the truth. Certain male humans have a high sperm count and are kept alive. Their sperm is used to alter the DNA and create a non-gender being called Type 2. That sperm is grown some way and altered again, put in large wombs, many destroyed. Certain are altered again and then put in separate wombs. They resemble ugly humans when growing, but look normal when fully grown, which takes only a few months from fetus size. They have a short lifespan, less than a year. Some female humans are used for breeding. Countless women have had a sudden miscarriage after about three months' pregnancy. Some never knew they were pregnant. Others remember contact from some way. The fetus is used to mix the DNA in types 1 and 2. The atomic makeup in that fetus is half human, half almost human, and would not survive in the mother's womb. It is taken at three months and grown elsewhere. So, a bit confusingly, from what I can gather, 
that's what's made its way out into the public, and it's a description of a larger set of papers, probably forever out of reach. Costello, again, supposedly a security officer at the Tulsi base, uh, but his background is pretty much unverifiable, and he's honestly a, a pretty problematic source. Sometime in the 90s, he was supposedly interviewed by Bruce Allen Walton, also known as Branton. This interview is available in the luridly titled Underground Alien Biolab at Dulce, the Benowitz UFO Papers, which is a collection of various previously out-of-print or rare Dulce and Benowitz materials. It's worth picking up, actually. There's some good stuff in there. Let's look at some of the testimony from this Costello guy. First off, when did all of this start? I heard Dulce was started in 1937-38 by the Army engineers, enlarged over the years. Most recent work was completed tunnels to the Arizona site, one of the older underground facilities. The Four Corners base is called Perica. Most of the Native Americans living in that area are aware of the base and could tell us about the underground life forms that frequently are spotted in those communities. Bigfoot, etc. I really, really enjoy the Bigfoot, etc. sort of offhandedly thrown out there. Later, Branton asks, by whom was the Dulce installation originally constructed? Nature started the caverns. The Draco, or reptilian humanoids, used the caverns and tunnels for centuries. Later, through Rand Corporation plans, it was enlarged repeatedly. The original caverns included ice caves and sulfur springs that the aliens found perfect for their needs. The Dulce Caverns rival Carlsbad Caverns in size. The interview also goes into the sordid connection between the American government and alien nations. Branton asked if the underground shuttle system that's been reported at Dulce connects to Mount Shasta in California. Yes, Mount Shasta is a major site of alien, elder race, reptilian race, human meetings. Beginning with Grover Cleveland, every president in U.S. history has visited Telos City. Truman was supposed to have visited the lower realms as a high archon on Earth. He was supposed to have met the king of the world there and gave him the keys to the USA. Note from Branton. Whether or not the reigning king of the Agarda realms at the time had benevolent or other motives, subjecting America to an outside superpower without congressional consent would be considered high treason. Although unelected, appointed individuals working within the executive, military, industrial branch of government might choose to do so of their own volition without congressional or senatorial consent, such an act cannot apply to the America which is based on the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. There are apparently two nations occupying the United States. The traditional grassroots America, established by the Founding Fathers and led by the elected government, and the fascist Bavarian Lodge-backed underground nation, led by the corporate government which is contesting the original America on its own soil. The lengthy comment from Branton, and to be clear, this interview is about 30-40% to 40 lengthy comments from Branton, again connects the paranormal and extraterrestrial elements of these stories to profoundly sort of prosaic political issues. And this idea of a, of a shadow government running the United States, um, backed by the Illuminati or, or what have you, is, uh, is, is a, a constant during the 1990s. Branton himself would produce probably thousands of pages of writing during the 1990s concerned with Dulcie, but also expanding into the political realm more than, more than just the ET realm. There's the Dulcie book, the Omega file, and other lengthy internet tomes. And I've got to say, they're pretty derivative of the stories originally promulgated by 
Bishop slash Levesque, Bill Cooper, and Thomas Costello, but they're widely available on the open internet. Knock yourselves out. And by derivative of those writers, what I mean to say is the, the Branton books just reprint pages and pages and pages of stuff. Uh, they, they really are a chore to get through. So one last figure in the Dulcie Circus, a guy named Phil Schneider. Schneider claimed to be an engineer who worked on the construction of underground bases. He claimed also to be present for the battle between aliens and humans. And here's a clip of Phil Schneider talking about that. When I saw Green Beret and Black Beret people encamped inside of our geologist camp, I knew something was up, the gig was up. First of all, I knew all about the alien agenda. I'll explain that in a few minutes. The large alien greys had been encamped there for as best as believed possible about four or five hundred years. It had been one of their internal bases. And we drilled holes right on top of it. All the stinking air, all the black sooty air came right out as soon as one, the first hole was sunk and all this soot came up and, well, that's when it all, all the hell broke loose, really, all it started. Anyway, after we drilled all four holes, it took about a, two days to drill all four of them. And when you build an underground base, you drill four basic holes and then you build, you call stopes or cross-member holes across and then you bla use blasting equipment, you know, special blasting equipment by the analyzation of the rock formation and you literally blast out or tunnel out or, or deflagrate or melt rock out to build the large rooms that are required for this underground base. Well, in this process I was lowered down the basket of one of these holes and about from me to this elderly woman here in the front was sitting a seven foot tall alien gray. The stench was worse than the worst garbage can you can imagine. Uh, the person was at, or the entity was absolutely horrible. I didn't waste any time. I reached for my pistol. At that time, as an engineer, I didn't have time to carry all the folder, all of one of these big submachine guns at all the sea spray and the yellow fruit and the, all the uh, outer perimeter and inner perimeter security people carried. I carried a little Walter PPK pistol with a nine-shot clip. This was in late August of 1979. Now, you got a regular suit of clothes, you got a regular clothes on, plus you're in a almost like a spacesuit environment, and you're reaching for a gun. It's, it's not the easiest thing to do, and then to pop a clip in it and start shooting. And I killed two of them. Yes, they're mortal, and they do die. However, in the process, uh, one of them did this. I all I remember is that he just kind of waved his hand in front of his chest, and the next thing I know, this blue beam hit me and just literally opened me up like a fish. And every, uh, burnt, burnt my fingers right off of me, and it was some form of electrical force because the kind of like hit, being hit by a lightning bolt burned all my toenails off of me. Uh, completely crispy crittered my left foot. Schneider's accounts also veered into some of the prominent political conspiracy theories of the time, such as the supposed plan to transport Americans opposed to the New World Order to prison camps. Recently, I knew someone who lived near where I live in Portland, Oregon. 
He worked at Gunderston Steel Fabrication, where they make railroad cars. Now, I knew this fellow for the better part of 30 years, and he was kind of a quiet type. He came to see me one day, excited, and told me they're building prisoner cars. He was nervous. Gunderson, he said, had a contract with the federal government to build 107,200 full-length railroad cars, each with 143 pairs of shackles. There are 11 subcontractors in this giant project. Supposedly, Gunderson got over $2 billion for the contract. Bethlehem Steel and other steel outfits are involved. He showed me one of the cars in the rail yards in North Portland. He was right. If you multiply 107,200 times 143 times 11, you come up with about 15 million. This is probably the number of people who disagree with the federal government. Schneider was found dead in January 1996, and the death was ruled a suicide. His ex-wife claimed it was a murder. However, according to Greg Valdez, apparently she believed this because, at least in part, because of a psychic vision of some kind, as well as the fact that Schneider had told her that if he was ever found dead, that it would not be a suicide. Schneider had a number of documented physical and psychological issues, cancer, arthritis, all kinds of stuff. Um, Schneider's death, whether it was a suicide or not, would become a big ball of conspiracy with people claiming that Schneider was was killed because of what he revealed about the secret government and about the underground bases. But none of the things Schneider said, at least that I've heard him say, none of those things were original to Schneider. Um, Schneider presented himself as a whistleblower who was there for part of it, but all he was really doing was reiterating the claims that people had made earlier. Schneider might have been a whistleblower. He might have been a dupe. He might have been unbalanced. We'll never know. Um, but uh, but if you if you start looking for Phil Schneider stuff on the internet, you will find a remarkable amount of material for a guy who was only really active for a couple of years in the mid-90s. But remember, in the world of conspiracy theories, no one ever commits suicide and nobody ever dies a natural death. Whatever is going on at Dulce, and there's lots of stuff that has gone on in that area, from early tests using underground nukes to release natural gas, kind of like fracking, but with nukes, to cattle mutilations and UFO sightings. Despite all of the weird stuff going on, despite all the evidence that claims of an underground alien base for genetic experimentation are probably false, the story persists. And what you find out there nowadays is largely regurgitations of stories from the 80s and 90s. Some people have some interesting spins on it, though. Uh, Richard Boylan, who we met a few episodes ago, wrote in 2003 about an attack on the Dulce base by the U.S. government in what appeared to be a discussion about the supposed 1979 conflict between humans and aliens, combined with maybe a mishearing of stories about the United States using underground nuclear weapons as part of natural gas release and exploration. This is what Richard Boylan had to say. The nuking of the, the Dulce government laboratory was because the cabal military operatives were the bad guys, not the Zeta Reticulin volunteer scientists at residence at Dulce. Thus, you see an example of the cabal's merciless overreaction to things. There was a failure to cooperate by Delta forces in unloading guns during a high-energy experiment to be conducted by the Zeta scientists. If the Deltas did not unload, the high-energy field would have set off their ammunition, killing troopers and Zetas. The paranoid Delta troopers thought the Zetas were going to trick them and capture them disarmed. The Delta troopers locked and loaded and drew down on the Zeta scientists preparing to fire. 
The Zetas, in self-defense, killed the Delta troopers by thought projection before the Deltas could open up on them with their fully automatic machine guns. The Cabal's response to this unfortunate misunderstanding was to order a nuclear detonation within Archuleta Mesa, Dulce Laboratory, killing the volunteer Zeta scientists and residents there. Thus, you can see that the nuking of the Dulce Lab is not proof of Star Visitor bad intentions, but rather another illustration of the long history of paranoia and violence by military and intelligence components of the Cabal shadow government. The Cabal have placed disinformation on the internet to cover up their own dirty deeds and try to foist blame onto the Star Visitors. Boylan's sort of rose-tinted vision of, of any aliens who happen to show up here being just, just great guys who want to help us is very much in keeping with his interpretation of the abduction experience, uh, for example. And it's kind of a mirror image of the more sinister visions of the last couple generations, equal in its intensity but aimed in a different direction. Um, they're all evil. They're all good. Uh, aliens are what you want them to be in some cases. Regardless... The story of Dulce is far larger and more complex than we've been able to cover today. Um, we've only scratched the surface, and I encourage you to um, look into this more deeply. But as it's consumed people's attention, and in some cases their good sense, look at the story, but don't let Dulce take over your saucer life. There are links to some of the books we've discussed, some of the book-length internet writings discussed here also up in the show notes, and you can explore that stuff and the archives at saucerlife.com, and you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. And that brings us to the end of the 90s Strike Back. Next time, we're back to being a little more eclectic with regard to time period and subject, and we'll be starting off with contactee Buck Nelson. Be back here in 10 days or so for Encounter 601, you and me and a dog named Bo. The Saucer Life, Encounter 507, was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius. Our prospecting consultant is Renegade Bill. The Saucer Life is a Chizo Media production. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. Ratings and reviews on iTunes and other platforms are always appreciated, and thank you so much for those who have left us those good reviews. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>